Welcome to Warrenton Bible Fellowship. Pastor John's message today is from Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. And the title of his sermon is, But I Don't Have That Kind of Faith. All of us as Christians know that we walk by faith, but we often wonder, do I have enough faith? And remember to like and subscribe to our channel so you won't miss a thing. God bless you. Well, I'm going to turn to Luke chapter 17. We're going to be in verses 1 through 10. And while you're finding it, let me tell you about a guy I worked with when I was in the car business. For those of you who don't know me, I was in the car business for about 20 years, and I, I ran a lot of interesting people, and I'm sure some of them are saying the same thing about me. Uh, so there was this guy I worked with, probably the most intelligent guy I've ever met. And he knew the Bible. He had read through the Bible. He knew Scripture better than I did, but he wasn't a believer. And so we would talk about that. And I would go, well, I, I don't understand. You read all the way through. The, yeah, I read it from the beginning to the end. I read it a couple of times. I said, and you don't believe it. He said, you know, I, I want to. I, I don't have enough faith. I said, well, what do you mean you don't have enough faith? He said, I, I just don't have that kind of faith. If you could tell me how I could get more faith then I think I could believe. And so that, that, you know, that question resonated with me uh, because I was worshiping with a group of people that kind of based our spiritual condition on how much faith we seem to have. And there were a lot of times when prayers were offered up, when, when things would happen, and, and you know, when we'd ask God for something, for a healing or something, and it didn't happen, the insinuation was, well, you need more faith. You need more faith. So it's a question we all ask at times. How can we get more faith? We're going to take a look at that in today's passage. How can you get more faith? Now last week we talked about the fact that it's not too late. We had learned that, that Jesus had been calling the Pharisees to repent. And they were refusing to do so. And so he related the horrific consequences of that refusal to repent. So this week he continues teaching about the kingdom. He's still talking about what it's like to live in the kingdom. And so, and after challenging the Pharisees to repent, he now turns to his disciples and begins talking to them. He's going to show them what it's like to live in the kingdom, kind of give them the ground rules for living in the kingdom. And they're going to need faith. When, you, when we find out what he wants them to do, we're going to understand that they're going to need faith. The question will be, do they have enough faith to do what Jesus is going to call them to do? So again, you know, we, we live in an environment, sometimes in the church, where, where, where people try to gauge how much faith we have, try to gauge how spiritual we are. And so the, the disciples are going to find themselves in this situation. So the sermon title, again, is a quote from my friend, but I don't have that kind of faith. He said he didn't have that kind of faith. So be aware that Pharisees are still within earshot. They're standing there listening to all this. Some of the comments that he makes to his disciples are designed to teach his disciples, but they're also designed to raise the awareness of the Pharisees. So he's talking to both his Pharisees and his followers. So, so today's passage is divided up into four directives for believers who, who want to live in the kingdom of God and want to take full advantage of all the blessings of the kingdom of God, four directives. The first one is what we shouldn't do. 
That'll be in verses 1 and 2. And then in 3 and 4, we will see what we should do. Uh, And in 5 and 6, we'll see how we should do it. And in 7 through 10, we're going to look at why we should do these things. So let's take a look at our our first directive. What we shouldn't do in verses 1 and 2. Now, I'm going to divide one up into 1A and 1B, first half and second half. 1A says, And he, Jesus, said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Now, what you need to read here is that we're going to run into temptations. They're going to happen. And, and so, the, the level of temptation you have doesn't mean you're spiritually weak. Jesus says, temptations are sure to come. We're going to be enticed to sin. Now, just to make this simple and make sure we don't over, overcomplicate it, that, that urge to sin comes from one of two motivations. The first one is to satisfy ourselves, and the second one is to preserve ourselves. Now, think about that later on today. There there are two motivations of sin, self-fulfillment and self-preservation. So, and both of these stem from the idea, listen carefully, that there is something in our lives that we need, something apart from God. Listen carefully. Paul tells us our grace is sufficient for us. We sang it. We heard it in the scripture reading. But we buy into the temptation that there is something else we need. If you stop to think about it, every ad, every commercial ever written plays into that temptation, doesn't it? You need to have this. Your teeth aren't white enough. You know, you need to have this. Your car's not clean enough. It's not new enough. Blah, 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 blah. So every, all advertising is based on trying to convince us that there is something that we need apart from God. I'm going to tell you something else. All politics are based on that as well. Think about it. Send me your emails. I'll be happy to dialogue with you on it. But politics are based on, I can do this for you. You need this over here. You don't need that guy. You need this guy. You don't need that platform. You need this platform. And we buy into it. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that all politics are bad. I'm just saying that we've got to be careful where we put these priorities. Because when we start putting soap bubbles above God in our priority, we've got a problem. But when we start putting platforms and issues above God, we've got a problem as well. Advertising and politics, trying to convince us of things that we need. So when temptations arise, we should be really careful how we evaluate them. And we should be able to assess within ourselves our motivations for indulging in those things. What do I hope to get? And the real question we need to ask ourselves is if I engage in this activity, if I buy this product, if I support this person, will it help or will it hinder my sanctification? Will it bring me closer to God? Or will it drive me further away? Tough questions. So we need to be really careful of what we embrace and not just what we embrace, but how emphatically we embrace it. 
We need to be cautious. But there's something, there's something that we need to be even more careful of. And that's in 1B. But woe to the one through whom they come. We don't want to be the one who introduces temptation into the life of another. Why? Because verse 2, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. There's a lot of discussion about what these little ones mean here. But it's not children. It's not technon. It's a derivation of micro. Uh, so I think what they're talking about here are, and most likely he's talking about those who are less knowledgeable, those who are prone to being led, those who are, are subject to being manipulated, those who aren't mature enough to know bad teaching or evil influences when they see them. Those people are young in faith. You have to be careful in how you interact with them. We should be careful of not causing someone else to stumble. Now, we know that, amen? This is a mature congregation. We've been together for a long time. We know that we shouldn't say, hey, why don't you go over and murder that guy? Don't you think that if you just walked into the bank and showed him a gun, they'd give you a bunch of money? Wouldn't it be easy? We know not to do that. We don't want anybody to sin. But this, this charge might be harder than it looks, in particular in today's environment. It's easy to buy into the things that we hear around us. It is easy to spread anger and fear and bear paranoia. As a matter of fact, a lot of folks are telling us to do that. Aren't they? People tell me, you're being manipulated. Yes. By everybody. Everybody's manipulating us. You know, we used to, we used to, call, we used to call the people on TV talking heads. Well, you know, now they're not just on TV, they're on YouTube, they're on Facebook, they're, they're everywhere. And, and what they do is they're constantly telling us what to pay attention to. They're constantly telling us what to allow to consume our time and all of our emotion. They are constantly, they are incessantly distracting us from what we're called to do. Look over there, the battle's about gender. No, 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 wait, over there, it's about sexuality. No, it's about race. No, it's about the election. It's about the vaccine. It's about the other side. The battle's all around you. Be careful. It's everywhere but in the gospel. Very few people are telling us that the battle is over souls. The truth of who Jesus Christ is. They tell us what to be consumed by, what to spend our time on, what to get angry at, what to get frustrated over, what to be afraid of. And a lot of people buy into it. A lot of people end up angry and frustrated and, then, and a lot of people begin to fear and a lot of people stop trusting God. And in short, a lot of people end up sinning. Wow. And every time we allow that to happen in our lives and we do the things that we do that we have learned to do, we put up the post, we send the email, we call the attention to this, look at this video, this guy says this, that guy says that, so on and so forth. It's all over the place. Every time we fall for that, 
we cause someone else to get angry or frustrated or paranoid or fearful and we cause them to sin nobody's robbing any banks but everybody's upset isn't isn't that what the Pharisees were doing oh look Jesus is healing on Sabbath that's against the rules he's not a good guy he's uttering blasphemy he's going to cause trouble with the Romans we're you know we're trying to have some equity here between us and the Romans and he's upsetting the apple cart he's not one of us he's associating with the wrong type of people not much has changed in the message from those who would call us a sin in the last 2,000 years. That's pretty deep for a message. It looks like he's talking to his disciples 2,000 years ago, doesn't it? All these things cause the church to get distracted to focus on something other than the gospel. Instead of making believers, it becomes very easy for us to make enemies. Scripture talks about this. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now, now, now we know what not to do. Don't let anybody make you sin, but make sure that you're not making anybody else sin as well. Okay, so don't do that. Well, what should we do? That's our second directive. What we should do, verses 3 and 4. 3a, pay, watch this. Pay attention to yourselves. Now, he's not just saying be self-aware. He's saying look deep inside. There's a multi-pronged directive here in just a few sentences. And he says, really, the warning is don't examine others more closely than you examine yourselves. Look, look to yourself first before you start looking to others. Pay attention to what you're doing. Pay attention to what you're thinking. Pay attention to what's going on in your heart. Evaluate it. Measure it. And so this part of the directive is to urge some self-examination, to urge us as believers to assess the motives of our hearts. Why am I doing what I'm about to do? And do that in everything that we do. In particular, we want to do that to those who hurt us. Look at this, 3B. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Now, notice Jesus says brother. And so he's talking to the believers. He's talking to the people in his family, the people in his church, someone in the church, someone close by. He's talking about his followers and how they should get along with each other. How you manage in, in a world where there's a lot of oppression and a lot of tension and a lot of confusion? Of course, that was just back then. That's not now. So when we see a brother or a sister in sin, we should rebuke. Now, this is not meant to be a strong retaliation in what they're doing. We should admonish them. We do this with some gentleness. Not to catch someone in doing something they're wrong, but to encourage each other as we form a community that is seeking righteousness. To lift each other up. To encourage each other to pursue holiness, to pursue righteousness, and encourage each other in their walk. 
And then, of course, it's important as we consider these things, it's important as we look around us to examine our own hearts and to determine the motive of our heart before we even try to rebuke someone else. And, and, and if, if we can approach them in love, if we can approach them in gentleness with some compassion, if the sinner repents, well, we should forgive. Whoa. Well, that can be hard, especially if... I mean, you know, if, if we don't know the person real well, we can kind of, we can forgive them, but what if they're particularly close to us? What if something they've done is particularly harsh? What if we've been betrayed down to the depths of our being? What if we've been wounded? What if they've taken something from us that is precious? Verse 4, and if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent. Look at this. You must forgive him. Wow. Well, that leads to some questions, and they're reasonable. What does true repentance look like? Well, true repentance should be not just, I'm sorry I got caught, but there should be a change of heart. There should be some change of behavior. At least there should be a desire to change behavior. Some people have addictive personalities. We all know somebody that's consumed by something, and they want to change, but they've got the struggle of the flesh that, that Paul describes in Romans 7. And this is a tough thing to do. And look what it says. It doesn't say if they sin against you seven times. It says if they sin against you seven times in one day and repent, you should forgive them. This is hard to do. But we should remember how often for God gives us as we sin, as we drop the ball. We should offer the same type of forgiveness to other people. So what we should do is examine ourselves, repent for our own sins, and be as forgiving towards others as God has been towards us. That's a tough calling. That's a hard thing to do. The disciples are not stupid. They understand what's being asked of them. How are they going to walk that out? That takes us to directive number three how we should do what we're called to do. Verses 5 and 6. The apostles said to the Lord, verse 5, increase our faith. Well, well, wait a minute. What does that mean? I mean, whole theologies and doctrines have been, been based on this phrase. But they've heard what Jesus wants them to do. They realize this is a tough calling. They realize they can't do it on, an own, on their own. Maybe this is so tough, they feel ill-equipped to handle it. Have you ever been asked to do something that you feel ill-equipped for? I can't do that. See, the disciples feel like my friend. That their faith is not enough to get the job done. And there's a whole lot here. And the first thing we ought to see is they know they need more faith. And so they turn to Jesus and ask him to add to the faith that they already have. Now, notice it's increase our faith, not give us faith. They're recognizing that they have some faith and they want Jesus to give them some more. And they want more faith to do what? Now, and this, is where, this is where we have to be careful because there are those that would teach us that 
if we have more faith, we'll have all of our prayers answered. We'll have the desires of our heart. We'll get the bigger car, the new job, the big house, more money, so on and so forth. What are they asking for more faith to do? To do what he just told them to do. To pay attention to themselves, to repent of their own sins, and to be forgiving of those who repent to them. They're not asking for a shot in the arm here. They're not asking for a boost for the day. They're not asking for a supernatural miracle of intervention. They're not asking Jesus to wave his magic faith wand over them and all of a sudden make them more faithful. They realize they're being called to not, not, not just trust in God, but called to a new way of living, a new way of looking at themselves in light of who God is, a new way of relating to the people around them in light of who Christ is. And they know that it's going to take some spiritual maturity. They know it's going to take some growth. It might take some time. It may, they might need to know a bit more about who Christ is and how He impacts their day-to-day life. These are the things that they're learning while they're walking with them. So they're not asking for this sudden infusion of faith. They want to grow in their faith. All right there in that little word, increase. They want to move on from where they are to where they want to be. From where God has them to where God's taking them. And they know that they can't do it on their own. They need help in growing in their faith. And Jesus reassures them with this, verse 6. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say this to the, this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Here's another whole set of doctrines and theologies that come out of this mustard seed thing. Fact of the matter is, the scriptures talk about the mustard seed five times. It's in, if you want to write this down, uh, Matthew 13, Matthew 17, Mark 4, Luke 13, and here. Now this is how we know that they're asking to grow in their faith. Because every time scripture talks about the mustard seed, it talks about something that starts very small and grows gradually into something very, very large. We saw this in the kingdom in, verse four, in chapter 14. It starts very small right there in Jerusalem and grows to encompass the whole world. We eventually encompass all of creation. So, Jesus says, you know, your faith will grow. The faith you have will grow. We've we got to be very careful about taking all this literally. It's a parable. Jesus wants his disciples to realize that God, what, what God can do with just a little bit of faith. Uh, I mean, you know, to us it would be unusual to see a mulberry tree growing in the sea, but if God wants to plant one in the sea, he can do that. Amen? But he's trying to make a point here. He's trying to say that, you know, with just a little bit of faith, God can do a whole lot of stuff. He wants them to think about what can happen when, when they trust God. Just a little bit. You know, Hebrews 11 is filled with the men and women that we call the hall of fame of faith, the pillars of our, found, of our, our faith and our foundation, okay? But it's filled with people that were just as flawed and just as prone to make a mistake as you and I are. It's filled with stories of people that had a little bit of faith and God did something amazing with them. He did something world-changing with those folks. And he can do that through you. 
He can do that through us as well if we just have a little faith. So what Jesus is trying to teach his followers is this. Is that the presence of faith is more crucial than the size of faith. He wants to teach him that the presence of faith is more crucial than the size of their faith. What he's saying is we take the first step, we trust in God, and he makes miracles happen. You know, oh, are you talking about the lame walk and the blind? Oh, yes, yes, God can do all that. But God makes really incredible miracles happen. He gives people new lives. He gives people a new heart. And when people trust in him, they live forever in his presence, in heaven. No more sin, no more pain, no more disease. Just the joy of being with the Lord. You want to see a miracle? There it is right there. Somebody living forever. So this is how we do the things that Christ is calling us to do. By expressing a little faith, moving out from where we are, heading toward where we want to be, taking it step by step, and trusting God to do the rest. Now Jesus has one more directive for him, and it's another parable. Why should we do all this? Verses 7 through 10. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table. So, so the scenario is familiar to everyone. Everybody around Jesus would know exactly what he's talking about. So he's trying to describe the attitude of the disciples in this little story here. So it's the end of the day. Uh, the, the slave has been out servant, doulos, same word. Slave has been out working. He's probably had a long day. He's been doing his chores. He comes in the house. And, and, and so Jesus says, so when he comes in, does the master prepare a meal for the slave? Sit down, relax. I know you've been working hard. Take it easy. Don't worry, I got it. And so in verse 8, Jesus says, will he not rather say to him, the master say to the slave, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and after you will eat and drink. So no, no. He's not going to tell a slave to relax. Matter of fact, he's going to say, hey, your work's not yet done. The slave gets to eat after the master eats. And that, that was back then, that was neither cruel, no, nor was it uncommon. It was just how things worked. And besides, look what Jesus is teaching here. The slave is clearly called upon to demonstrate that the master is a higher priority in his life than himself. It's what Jesus has been teaching all along. Is God your highest priority or you? Now he's trying to put feet to it here. Verse 9, Jesus says, Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? Does the slave expect the master to show appreciation? Is the master now obligated to make a gesture towards the slave? I got to tell you something. This is a difficult narrative in today's culture, isn't it? There's such a stigma hovering over the word slave. And as soon as we hear it, we hear, oh, somebody, an abusive and cruel master. And if we're not careful, we can begin looking at Christ this way if we read it that way. But that, that's not the way it was back then. 
Slavery back then was frequently deliverance. And if the slave owner followed, if the master followed biblical practice, the slaves were treated with compassion. They were given comfort. They were given shelter. They were given food. They were treated well. Well enough that many of them, after they had earned their freedom, would stay with the master and become what they called a bond slave. Somebody who decided to stay. So Jesus is making this specific point that those of us who know him as Lord have been purchased by his shed blood. It's not clear to them yet, but it will be. We have the the advantage of looking back on it. What they're going to find out is that he redeemed them from their sin with his blood. He redeemed them from sin and from death. And now, and now, after those who call upon him as Lord, they're taken care of with compassion and mercy. They're given food. They're given shelter. So, when we do what's commanded of us, do we expect him to show appreciation to us? Do we expect him to go, oh, you've been working so hard. Why don't you just sit here and I'll do everything else? That's a point he's trying to make. No. No, we should be constantly showing him our appreciation for everything that he does for us and even more so than the master in his story for what he continues to do for us. So Jesus sums up these little lessons with his disciples here by telling them why they should do what he says. That's in verse 10. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. We show our gratitude. We show our appreciation to Christ for what he's done by serving him, by doing what he says, not out of obligation, not out of some sense of legalism that we have to do this, but out of our love for him, out of our thanks for him, for delivering us from eternal torment. He just got done talking about that. Remember the passage before that? You become one of my slaves, then you don't have to go through that. So this this is how we're supposed to live in the kingdom. They're ground rules for all that we should say and do. And, you know, they're not the only rules, but they're, they're a really good place to start. These are the basics. We have our four directives for the believers. Uh, what we shouldn't do. We should, we should avoid stumbling. We should avoid causing others to stumble. We've got to be careful with that. What we should do, examine ourselves as closely as we examine other people, at least, maybe even more so. Remember how much God has forgiven us and return that forgiveness to others. How we should do this, the way we should do this, would ask the Lord to increase our our faith, but listen to me carefully. We're not relying on the magic wand. We are asking the Lord to increase our faith, but we will participate in this. How do we participate? Watch this, out of Romans 10, verse 17. So, You people know this. So faith comes from what? Hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. Now everybody thinks that means preaching. Okay? But the word for hearing here is hearing and assimilating, appropriating. Hearing and understanding. Faith comes through assimilating and appropriating the word of God. 
Well, what does that mean, John? You've heard this from me so often that you're probably tired of hearing of it. It means read your Bibles. It means read your Bibles. It means read your Bibles. Well, I don't know what part to read. Start at page one. <laughs> yeah, and don't stop till you get to the end of the page, the end of the book. Okay, well, what do we do now? Start at page one again. <laughs> God is trying to reveal his character and nature. He's trying to show us how to lead lives that are free of the anger and frustration and the manipulation and everything we see around us. And nobody's spending any time doing it. Now, I know a lot of you people are, so I'm talking to the choir here. I get it. But encourage the people around you to read their Bibles. If we could get everybody reading their Bibles, maybe the talking heads would start talking a different tune. Maybe they start talking about grace and mercy and compassion and the gospel and the need for people to repent and be saved, not for the need for people to vote this way or vote that way or buy this thing or buy that thing. Read your Bibles. Why should we do this? Jesus purchased us with his blood. He delivered us from the flames of hell and an eternal constant torment. That's a tough task. But faith will get us through, won't it? Do we have enough? Do you have enough? My friend wanted to know, how do I get more? I heard from him a couple years ago. He had been praying for enough faith to believe. Do you hear what I said? And he'd been praying it for several years. And he sent me an email. I get an email from him every now and then. He said, John, I'm saved. And I've been praying for enough faith to believe. And I realized that I was praying to God. And that in order to do that, I had to believe in him. And that I don't need more faith. I just need the faith I have. That's us. That's us. We don't need more faith. We just need the faith that we have. You already have everything you need. We sang songs about it this morning. Grace is sufficient, is it? The world tells us we need grace plus. You have everything you need. You have the mustard seed that God will use to change the world. He'll, he'll grow you. He'll draw you closer to Him. He'll do miracles because He's given you that mustard seed. If you call upon Him as Lord and Savior, you have the seed. And God will be faithful to grow that. You don't have to be a pillar of unfailing faith. All you have to do is trust your Father in heaven and do what He tells you to do. Just walk those things out. His son died to give you that faith. What will you do with it? What will you do with it? Ponder that question as we prepare our hearts for the communion table. Now we have some visitors here. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're welcome to take communion with us. Don't have to go through indoctrination or membership classes. You're a brother and sister in Christ. We would invite you to join us. Uh, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, we would just respectfully ask you to pass. 
Come and talk to us. We'll be happy to talk to you. Send us an email. Give us a call. Whatever. We're happy to talk to you about that. But now the deacons come forward. We will pass out these little packets. You've seen them before. Thank you, gentlemen. Okay, so these little packets have a little foil top. If you peel that back, there's a wafer under there. And then if you peel it back, the next player, there's some juice in there. We'll take the wafer together, and then we will take the juice together. Go ahead and pass them out. So prepare your hearts. Ask the Spirit to impress upon you what you just heard. Ask the Spirit to... Now, I know a number of you uh, are in need of healing. Uh, I've heard from a few people this morning. They're suffering from some very specific maladies. Okay? We're going to pray for healing for you uh, if at home. Uh, you need a touch from the Spirit. We're going to pray for that to happen. Uh, we leave the healing up to God, but we ask Him for it in faith. Uh, and and if, if there are issues in your life, we're going to spend a few minutes in silence. I'm going to ask you to lift those up to the Father. If you struggle, you know, when I said, if somebody close hurts you and somebody popped into your mind right away, that's the person that you pray for. That's the person you hand over to the Holy Spirit. That's the person that you, you release uh, into the hands of God. So, do business with the Holy Spirit, and then we'll take the elements together. Father, we, we thank you that even now your spirit moves among us, those who are here, those who are, who are watching online, draws us unto you, Father, peaks our heart, Lord, to, to surrender to you those things that, that you want us to surrender to you, not because we've done anything wrong, but because you want better for us, Father. You want freedom for us. You want us to be loose of the shackles that keep us from you. So we thank you for this sacrament that reminds us that your son died for us. That he was buried and that he rose again. Lord, he, he lifted up the bread and he said, this is my body. And we come before you as a body united in him. We thank you for that union that we have, Lord. We pray that we might walk in it. But we also confess that there are bodies among us that are hurting, Father. There are bodies among us that are ill. There are bodies among us that need a touch from you. And we ask, Lord, that you would reach out and touch those that need healing. Draw them unto you, Father. Uh, make your glory known. Make your love for them known, Father, in what you do in their bodies. Well, we thank you for the, the one body that was broken for us and has given us these wafers and this bread to remember that he allowed that body to be hung on the cross. Take and eat. Father, being broken was, was a sacrifice. It was painful. But brokenness wasn't enough to bring us into your presence. We needed to be cleansed, Father. And your your scriptures, the Old Testament shows us that, that the shedding of blood brings a remission of sins. 
Now we see, Lord, that your son has shed his blood that our sins might be remitted. So we thank you, Father, for that cup. We thank you for that blood that flowed so freely from him and cleanses us so completely. We thank you for the freedom we have in him and the promise, the promise of eternal life in your presence because in his sacrifice we are made righteous. Take and drink. Lord, we thank you for this church. We thank you for the way you have used us, the way you continue to use us. I ask your blessing on all of the families, all the homes that are represented here and online. Father, I ask your your provision for them, your protection for them. And as we move forward, we ask you that you would bless our plans, Father. But give us the wisdom to see if we're not moving in your will and the determination to change our plans according to your will. Father, we thank you for this time we've had together. Pray that you would impress upon us the truths that you want us to carry from here and to leave everything else behind. That we might be closer to you, that we might be better servants, more thankful, Father, and that your love and your grace and your mercy will continue to flow to us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.